John chapter 17. We read the scripture already, so let's get into it. This is, I've referred to this already as the high priestly prayer of Christ, and I really believe it is. I believe it's more than the high priestly prayer. It's, I believe, the institution of the new covenant. He's really praying here. He will not officially uh, instituted until his his death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. But he prays as if that's already an accomplished deal because it is, in his mind, settled a settled thing. But uh, we see a lot of symbolic language in it as well. As, as I said, it's his high priestly prayer. And it, we when we think back at the high priest in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, he wore on his chest a breastplate that was kind of like a display box that had 12 gemstones that were attached into his shoulders, hanging there on, over his heart. And it symbolized his bearing the burden as the high priest of God, bearing the burdens of the people of Israel, the nations of Israel, supported on his shoulders, worn on his heart. Could the high priest in the Old Testament really do that? And my answer is no. And here again, it's, it prophetically spoke of a greater high priest. That greater high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he now takes the names of all the saints of the church age and of the, and of the ages past upon himself as high priest. And that's what he's doing in this prayer. So we read there in the book of Hebrews, Christ did not exalt himself to be a, a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you, quoting from Psalm 2. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Think about that. In the days of his flesh, Christ often got alone, sometimes praying all night. And the writer of Hebrews describes it here. He's offering up prayers, offering up prayers. That's sacrificial language. Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The idea there, the idea of son here is, it, you read that, you say, although he was a son, well, yeah, well, don't sons learn obedience? <laughs> but this sounds different. It, but the point of the matter is, the son here is not, a, is not a child that's under his father's tutelage, but he is a full-fledged son in the sense that it, of his maturity. Yet, in that condition, he still learned obedience through the things that he suffered, through what he suffered. Being made perfect through that suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews 4, 14 through chapter 5, verse 12. This is what Jesus is doing here in this. So Jesus expresses his will here to the Father. I will. Literally, it's cello in the Greek language. I will. Father, I will. He's praying for God's will, but he is asserting his own will. His will is that of the Father's. There in chapter 4, verse 34, we read, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in chapter 5, verse 30, he said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in chapter 6, verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And yet in this prayer he prays, I will that so and so. Because his will is right in tune with the Father's will. So in this section before us now, Christ asks nothing new. And the main theme here is unity. But we need to understand what unity means and why it is so important. He, had, he asked for himself. There's three parts of the prayer. The first part is he's praying for himself. The second part of the prayer, he's asking for God to uh, keep the disciples that he's going to leave behind when he comes back to the Father. And then he takes the third part of the prayer and he projects that onto those who will be saved under their ministry as the apostles of Christ sent out into the world. And the, and the main theme here is unity. Have we had unity in the Christian church? Far from it. I believe that day is coming. God is going to prepare His bride before He calls her to Himself. And we will truly be one even as the Father and the Son are one. So then in the first part of that prayer, He asked for glory for Himself. And then he asks for unity for his own. And the unity that he asks is more than simple organizational unity. It's not ecumenism. Ecumenism is I'll compromise my, my beliefs in order to lower my standards to your standards. And I'm not going to do that. And God doesn't want us to do that. The unity that he is is however as i've expressed here in the outline breathtakingly extravagant and this is what i really want you to see and understand this morning how glorious this unity is and it has two goals the first goal is that the world would know the father sent jesus that the world would know that the father sent jesus what does that mean? And then the second goal is that the Father loved those in His trust as He loved Jesus. That they would know this. They would know and understand that as the Father had loved Jesus, He loves those in His trust. Every believer is included in that love. 
If that doesn't make your heart rejoice this morning, I don't know what would. The Father loves you with the same love and exactly as He loved His own Son, Jesus Christ. So here the Jesus is praying for the disciples that were before Him. And He then prayed that those who would believe on Him through the apostles, through them, as, they, as he sent them out into the world, which is all the elect of the gospel age. But before we look into these verses before us, I would like to review and expand on a very subtle, but I think very real comparison of God speaking to the old covenant Israel on Mount Sinai and Christ speaking to the new covenant Israel on Mount Zion. That's where Jesus is. He's on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And we noted that last week also from Hebrews. We'll touch on that again. But um, this is his high priestly prayer. So what is the origin of the unity? That's the first question we have to ask is, what is the origin of the unity? And in this high priestly prayer, Jesus declared to the Father that he had manifest the divine name to the people entrusted to him by the Father. That's in verse number 6. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. His receiving them then was for the purpose of giving them eternal life. You see that back in verse 2. Those whom you have given me, you've given authority over all, uh, given me authority all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to me. This required then Jesus to redeem them out of the bondage of sin. This statement then contrasts the scene on Mount Sinai when God himself literally addressed chapter 20 verse 1. God worded the words in the Hebrew language, it's literally God worded the words. He spoke to them audibly on Mount Sinai. Wow. This assembly. But it was in such an awful scene of fire and smoke and, and a literal shaking of the earth. The scene here, I believe, was designated... To illustrate God's terrible holiness. God was speaking to the people on Mount Sinai in this awful scene to illustrate His holiness to them. And to provoke them and to warn the people to fear Him. And that they should listen obediently to his instructions, his Torah. Think, just think of that scene. And here's why. God's dangerous. We see a lot of people try to make him out to be this, you know, this grandfather in heaven, kind of a teddy bear figure that comforts. No, God is dangerous. And he warned the people 
there in Exodus 20 to beware, actually Exodus 19 to beware, lest he break out against them. Why would God break out against anybody? I thought he was this loving, caring figure. Yet the scripture says, I will break, you better follow my rules and you better do this carefully because I might break out against you. But here's the, th here's the thing. This danger is not due to God's impulsiveness nor intemperate rage. It's not like God is sitting there saying, get away from me. I'm gonna, I, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to come on, come on you. No, that's not it at all. God doesn't sin. And He certainly doesn't sin in this way. But what is it? It's God is a consuming fire. It's a His perfect holiness is a danger to human unholiness. So He is regarded there in Deuteronomy two places in Deuteronomy four verse twenty four and in Deuteronomy nine verse three as a consuming fire, and that's repeated in the book of Hebrews in our New Testament. In chapter 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. I've illustrated it like this. Here's a candle with a flame burning in that candle. And here comes a moth. And the moth is attracted to the flame. And the moth circles the flame. And then the moth gets a little closer to the flame. And suddenly the moth is a little too close to the flame. And boom! Dead moth. That's God. It's not that God doesn't want us near. It's that we can't get near because of His holiness. And in the process, God says, you better maintain the boundary. Don't let anybody cross the boundary lest I break out against them. That was what He was emphasizing. He is a consuming fire. That, thus we read in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the ungodly. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Isaiah 33, verse 14. You cannot play with fire, but God can make His own fireproof. And how? Isaiah answers his own question there in chapter 33 in verse, the next verse, verse 15. After asking who, who among us can dwell with the, with the consuming fire, he answers, He who walks uprightly and speaks uprightly, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. In other words, becoming personally holy. So the, the scene on Sinai ought to have provoked Israel to seek the righteousness and the holiness that comes only from God, as promised in His salvation in the New Covenant. 
But they didn't. They didn't. So all you got to do is look at, at this chapter, John chapter 17, and examine the language of this prayer to see the similarity in the inauguration of both covenants. The, co- the former covenant on Mount Sinai, the latter covenant on Mount Zion. And the key is that God spoke personally in Exodus chapter 20 and the establishment of the Old Covenant and to uh, there to the assembly on Mount Sinai. But, and Jesus spoke in person to, Israel, to the Israel of God assembled on Mount Zion. And I really think that that's what chapters 14 through 16 are. Establishing the new covenant. Seen in the words logos. The logos, which is the truth. These words that are translated word here, spoken in both instances, and it's intended to instruct. And then we have the word rhema, or Torah, New Testament rhema, the Old Testament Torah, to instruct the hearers as to what was promised to them and expected of them as to their covenant responsibilities. The old covenant people had to live under covenant responsibilities, and new covenant people are also obligated to covenant responsibilities. What are they? On Mount Sinai, God manifests His name to Israel in order to show His steadfast love, His hesed. Chesed, covenant love. Notice covenant love. That was a that was an awful, awful scene. To to for they, them to understand his holiness, but he speaks to them and talks to them in terms of love. That sounds almost contradictory. His steadfast covenant love. When when uh, Moses was con- a little confused, he asked the Lord, "Show me your glory." And what did God do? He revealed to them His Hesed, His covenant love, His steadfast, faithful covenant love. Because Moses saw His holiness was terrified by it. God said, I don't want you to be terrified. I want want you to enter in to the unity that I'm offering to you in Jesus Christ. So it says His steadfast covenant loved literally to generation after generation or generation upon generation and then he, the, 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 those are qualified by these terms. Those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what salvation does. As Jesus said very clearly there in uh, John 14, if, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do we love him? See? And how? How can I love him? Well, that's what this is all about. So this manifestation then of his name 
reveals the greater the great need for a gracious enablement for his own to be able to love him and to keep his commandments. What the Old Testament people on Mount Sinai should have recognized and understood is this awesome, terrible God, I want to know. So I will listen to him. And I will embrace him. And I will let him enable me to be able to do what he expects of me. But that's not what we hear. This is the sad part. So, God had promised to send this servant to fix the problem, sin problem and to enable his people then to experience his glorious covenant love. Old covenant Israel refused the voice of God. When he spoke to them audibly, they fled to Moses and they said, please don't ha- let God speak to us. You go and speak to him and you come and tell us what he says and we'll do it. Did they intend to? No. We read there in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 23, they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. We're not going to listen. Why do you think Jesus said so many times in the, New, in the New Testament, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Do you have hearing ears? Are you listening? On the other hand, Jesus declared to those who, to, to whom he gave instruction that they kept his word. In other words, they heard it, they took it in, they treasured it for themselves. John 17, verse 6. Israel promised in chapter Exodus 19, four, uh, 5 and 6, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the, peop- all, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Did they become that kingdom of priests and a holy nation? No. So what do we read in the New Testament? In Revelation chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5 verse 10. New covenant people keep his covenant and they receive the promise. God made them a kingdom and priest to their God and they shall reign on earth. Isn't that interesting? What's the difference? You know what, what priest means here? It mean, doesn't mean that we intercede for people. We don't offer sacrifices. We're called priests. But we are called priests. A a nation of priests. A holy priesthood. What does it mean? Now we do pray for each other. We do supplicate for each other. That was part of priest's duty. But more than anything, the priests were those from the tribe of Levi. 
and God scattered them. He didn't give them any allotment of land for themselves, but he scattered them among all the tribes of Israel. For what reason? To teach them God's word. The priest's job was to teach the word of God to those around them. Did you know that's your job? Your job is to teach the word of God to those around you, to your family, to your friends, co-workers, neighbors. You're to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Because we are a kingdom and priest God and the day is coming when we will reign on the earth. So the, the progress then of the divine purpose to establish the new covenant people is seen in the book of Hebrews, as I pointed out earlier and, and last week. Addressing the discouraged Jewish saints weary of persecution and danger of abandoning the assembly of Christ to join, to rejoin, uh, return to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews reminds them that, number one, the old covenant is now obsolete and ready to pass away. That's chapter 8, verse 13. Then he also compared the introduction of the old covenant assembly of Israel, redeemed from bondage out of Egypt, how? By the blood of the Passover lamb. And he compares that then with the, with the Israel of God, the redeemed by the true Passover lamb. As Paul said, Christ, our, uh, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. The former were rejected, but the latter were given the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Wow. But Hebrews also warns this. See that you do not refuse him. He's speaking to these wavering Jews. Jewish Christians right now. And he's telling them. See that, like, like the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Be careful. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape. Who refused him. Who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape. If we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and fear for our God is a consuming fire. God hasn't changed. So let, now I want to I express to you the nature of the unity because Jesus is telling us that the whole purpose of the covenant is to establish unity. It was designed to do that in the Old Testament you say, why did it fail in the Old Testament? Did God somehow make a mistake? No. What he's doing is illustrating. He's trying to show that humankind, left to themselves, cannot perform. If God just gives you a list of instructions to keep, like so many people, and I've talked to many like that, and said, uh, do, you, do you know that if you died right now that you'd go to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person and I've kept the commandments. Has anybody ever kept the commandments? 
Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him, uh, Lord, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, keep the commandments. Was Jesus telling him he could really keep the commandments? No, he's trying to show him that he's not kept the commandments. He said, which? And Jesus gave him, gave him some and he said, well, all these have I kept from my youth up. What do I, what do I lack yet? And Jesus dropped the bomb on him. He said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had great riches. What was that? What did he say? No, I love, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I love my money because my money serves me. It makes me happy. It buys my clothes. It feeds my flesh. That people think, oh, I've, I've kept the commandments. No, you haven't. And you never can. That's why the disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, God himself has to do it. So here's the unity. The Father was in the Son to the extent that it was he who did the work. Now think about that. In chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus said, the Father who dwells, with, dwells in me, he does the works. He does his works. In other words, Jesus said, I may be God in the flesh, but my works are, I'm not doing them. The Father in me is doing the works. I believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ was utterly, fully, completely, all of his life dependent on the Holy Spirit. Just like you need to be utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. At the same time, the Son, independence on and obedience to the Father, was his agent. So God used Jesus to speak everything into existence. And then to redeem fallen mankind. And yet at the same time, these persons of the Godhead remained completely distinguishable. The Father in me does the works. So believers are also distinct. But yet we're to be one. And, and they were to be one in covenantal union with each other as to their purpose for their existence as to the love which they experience and to the obedience or action that they show. They were to be in the Father and in the Son as seen in the, in the vine metaphor. That's in, in the chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. I'm not going to read them. But the, the branch, Jesus said, Abide in me. 
As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in me. That's union. Union. So he is identified with and draws life from and is fruitful only by that union in the vine. This is the heart of what it means for God to love us. And we to love him in response. To display here a compelling and an otherworldly love that is so vital to the witness of Jesus. We fail so miserably here. So how is this unity then visible to the world? I believe it's in three things. It's in the self-sacrificing service that believers have for the people of God and then others as well. We're so focused upon our own life. Then number two, by the undaunting perseverance they have to the mission charged to them by Jesus. When it gets tough, like say, like the old saying says, when when things get tough, the tough get you know get going. When the going gets tough, the tough get going, or something to that effect. And then thirdly, by their conscious dependence on God for life and fruitfulness. To say, Lord, I know what you expect of me, but I can't do it. I need you. While his own are now not perfect, right? None of us are perfect. But God's plan for them is to move toward that anticipated perfection. In other words, I had better be better today than I was yesterday. And then thirdly here, for the glory of that, uni the glory of that unity. Because Christ prayed for glory. He said, glorify me with the glory which I had before, with you before the world was. So this glory spoken of here in verse number 22. Notice. It says here, uh, the, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may, in order, notice, there's a purpose clause here. In order that they may be one, even as we are. Hmm. So here, here is in this, this relationship. Uh, while Jesus prayed there verses 1 through 5 here, it was for the glory of there that he prayed was for himself alone. His glory was already his, but that which he desired for all believers to share was in order that they may be one, even as he and the Father were one. I That just blows my mind. The secondary glory is best taken as a mediated revelatory glory. The self-revelation of the Father through the Son. Revelatory glory is essential to eternal life. And you see that back in the third verse when Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Wow. Wow. So it is, it's this 
It involves the personal knowing of Jesus Christ and a, and a vital relationship with Him. This glory then is further unpacked in, in verse 23. I in them, that's the union of salvation, and you in me, that's the power of the Father's love, and the aim is a perfect union, not realized, but anticipated. That they may become perfectly one. It, that's anticipated. This anticipated oneness then must be evidenced to the world if the world is to know, number one, that the Father sent Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The world hates Jesus. They claim to believe in some kind of a God, however they define him, but they hate Jesus. In order for them to really understand who God is, they must understand who Christ is first. So that, second of all, that the Father loved Jesus just as He loved the Son. I mean, believers. That the Father loved Jesus. Believers, excuse me. That the Father loved believers just as He loved the Son. Believers are to be caught up into this love of the Father and the Son which gives them their security, their contentment, and their fulfillment. And this is what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, when I learned about you, I bowed my knee to the Father. And, and he prayed for that they may be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in their inner being, in order then for Christ to dwell in them through faith, that is, that they are rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then we have a purpose clause. In order that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 17 and 19. That last, that last thing just blows my mind. That they be filled with all the fullness of God. You want that? Who doesn't? So in other words, the Almighty loves us with the same love that He reserved for His Son. And there could not be a more compelling evangelistic appeal than this. Then lastly here, the future of the unity. Jesus expressed in his desire for all the elect, not just for the disciples, immediate disciples there, but for all the elect, that they may be where, where he was in heaven. So we, we see that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. I'm not going to read that for you, but... There we we see this vast multitude that no one can number out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. And that there they would see His glory that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world. There in verse number 5. Oh, I can't wait for that. To look upon the glory of my Savior. On earth... They did see His glory in a little bit. First of all, number one, 
They saw it in his signs. That he, the miracles that he performed. I mean, nobody ever did anything like that. That's chapter 1, verse 14. Said, look at, well, excuse me. Let, read first, first of all, read chapter 1, verse 14, where, G, where we read in the introduction here, And the Word became flesh in the flesh and, the, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how did they see it? I, I believe they saw it in three ways. Number one, in his signs, which is chapter 2, verse 11, he manifests his glory in the, in the miracles. Number two, at least for Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was suddenly transformed into his glorious being in their presence. And then thirdly, more fully, in the cross and the resurrection, Second Corinthians Chapter 3 and verse 18. One day, all New Covenant saints will see Him as He is. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. And in glory, and in the glory that He enjoyed before His humiliation. And you can read Philippians chapter 2 on that one. Secondly, here the prayer also reveals the ultimate hope that they have as it turns on the Father's love for the Son. Here's, here is the foundation of our Christian experience. God loves His Son. And therefore, He will give Him whatever His heart desires. And Jesus said, I want those whom You have given to Me. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. Those who delight in being loved by the Father will also share in the glory of the Son in His triumph. And finally, verses 25 and 26 of John 17, we read, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved, uh, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's the ground of the future prospect of his believers, emphasizing here the continuing manifestation of the Father to his own. Jesus appealed to the righteous Father, whom the world does not know. Pressing the ancient hope lost from Eden, God dwelling in the midst of his people. One who is on high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, has declared this in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, I in, dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the, the heart of the contrite. Jesus enables his own to qualify. Praise the Lord. So what do we learn? First of all, that the, the principle here that Jesus lays out in this prayer is that Christ 
desires that the love that he and the Father enjoyed should be experienced by his creatures. That sin destroyed that capacity for loving for a loving union, but Jesus redeemed and rescued his people from self and sin so that they could love again. <laughs> love motivated that mission. We see that in John 3.16. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 reads, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The practical intention of Christ's high priestly prayer then was that salvation should change believers by experientially knowing the Father and the Son. And this is what Paul prayed, that his readers would be grounded in that love in order for them to comprehend and know the love of Christ, as we read in Ephesians 3. The question is, how are we to do this? Jesus demonstrated the process in the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Paul instructs us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And here's the problem. Our flesh, in our flesh, we are too focused on ourselves. And that's the problem. Jesus lived the love of God among us. Paul stressed that we are to be imitators of Christ. Jesus himself said, follow me. Jesus lives selflessly. Oh, that we might live selflessly. Paul commended the Thessalonian believers as those who work, whose work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, characterized their profession. Think about it. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Does that characterize you? Paul's own testimony was that he was wholly unworthy of the grace of our Lord which overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Oh, may the grace of God overflow for us with that same faith and love as we are in Christ. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider this truth this morning. And I pray your spirit would continue to work that work in us for your glory, and especially in these days. Father, that we may understand that we are one in you. And you in us. And it is your love in us. That makes the difference. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.